Hear the word of God from Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I'll give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan, here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he had done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning again, church family. So, so good to be here with all of you on this really warm day. By the way, has it been like radically warm? Like 
just weird. It does not, has not felt like Christmas or wintertime at all. I haven't liked it. I mean, I liked it because like one day it's like, oh, this is nice for once. But I'm like, it doesn't feel like Christmas. Random note. I hope you've enjoyed this Christmas season and now you're ready to face the new year. You guys ready to face 2022? Yeah? Are you guys pumped? Maybe not? No? Darn Omicron and inflation. Boo, right? I heard one comedian say 2021 was like changing their baby's diaper in the middle of the night. As soon as it was done, they were able to lay the baby back down. He just kind of laid the baby down. They're like, yeah, we get to go to sleep. And all of a sudden, the diaper was full again. And that's how you felt 2021 was. I don't know about some of you, but maybe some of you guys aren't as hopeful for 2022 as you normally would be for the start of a new year. Maybe some of you are. Maybe some of you guys are like, it can't get any worse, right? Don't say that out loud. But maybe some of you think that way. Maybe this year hasn't been that great. Maybe it's been great. Whoever you're at, 2022 doesn't carry the same luster that it kind of usually felt. The new year doesn't feel quite the same, you know? There's just not as much optimism or pumped up feel for the new year as I'm used to expecting. Whether you're excited for the new year or not, we're still called to face it and live it with purpose. So how do we do that? How do we confidently face the unknown of this year? And it just so happens we're starting a brand new series in the book of Joshua and Judges for the next few months. Now, this is intentional, guys. We want to read every book. We want to go through every book of the Bible. We often go through Old Testament and New Testament back and forth. And so here we are to the Old Testament. And to be completely real with you guys, I always, we talked about Revelation being one of the hardest books. We knocked that one out last kind of season. Josh, Judges and Joshua, or Joshua and Judges might be up there like the hardest books to preach a series through. So bear with us. Be patient with us. Um, but here we are. So I, I kind of don't like this style. I, don't, I like it because I feel like we're going to preach the whole Bible. But part of me is like, do we have to preach the whole Bible? This is hard. But we want you to know the full context of Scripture. We want you to know all of it. And we want us to be a church that's not known as just a New Testament church or Old Testament church. But we believe in the whole thing. We believe the Old Testament is just as important. It's double the length of the New Testament. There's a reason for it. And we're people who believe in the whole meta-narrative and the whole story of God. So we're in the book, we're in Joshua and Judges for the next few months. And here we find the Israelites facing a scary future and entering a strange land. For the next few months, we're going to journey, go on this journey with the Israelites and see how God keeps his promises and builds a nation out of his people. Now the book begins with the death of Moses. Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. He led them in the wilderness. He did the whole water thing. But now Moses is gone. Did anybody else get that reference, by the way? When I said Moses did the whole water thing? Nobody? That's from a commercial, nobody remember? I just really aged, no? There is a commercial that talk about Moses did the whole water thing. Okay, that's just me then. I just went to like Danny or somebody get with me, but come on, Danny. With the death of Moses, Israel faced a major dilemma. Moses was the only they've ever known. What's going to happen to them now? Who would intercede? Who would talk to Yahweh for them? Who would lead the Israel into the land across the river where the dreaded Canaanites lived? Who would, what would become of the covenant promises that the Lord made to his people 40 years ago? Think about this. 40 years ago is when they started on this journey. How they conquered the fortified city of Jericho, which blocked their entrance, even the entrance into the promised land. Many, actually most of those who had left Egypt had already died in the desert. And now a new generation had become prominent among Israel's tribes. So most of these people have actually never seen anything but the wilderness. 
And despite the hope that they felt as they marched north out of the wilderness in order to possess the land, and despite the renewal of the covenant promise on the plains of Moab, at this very moment, the people find themselves on the brink of the realization of what Moses was teaching them. And here they are after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they still have questions and not answers. They're so near, yet still far away. But people have left Egypt, but the exodus is really only half complete. They still haven't entered the new Eden of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so here the Israelite people, they lost their leader, this charismatic leader that took them out of slavery for 40 years, they were wandering, and they lost a generation of believers, people who saw the miracles that happened in Egypt. And they had a whole different generation of leaders in their place, and they made covenant commitments over and over again, but now they're here, and they're finally able, about to enter into the promised land, but they see walled cities, they see giants. Now, really quickly, I want to just mainly cover three main topics or three main ideas this morning. One is, I want you to look at the main character, Joshua. Two, the historical context. And then three, the message of this text. And just to give you a quick background, that's where we're going to go right now, this morning. We're just going to go to who Joshua is, the, second, the historical context, and the message of the text. So number one, Joshua. There's just two, I can talk about Joshua. Who's the only um, person in the Bible that had no father? Joshua, because he had none. He was a son of none. No. You're welcome. There are two important things I want you to notice about the figure of Joshua. Number one, on the one hand, Joshua points back to Moses. He does all these Moses-like things. He, Moses led the people through the Red Sea under the dry ground. Joshua chapter 3 will lead them across the Jordan River on dry ground. Moses met with the Lord at the burning bush and took it off his shoes because he was on holy ground. Joshua meets with the commander of the Lord's armies and also takes off his shoes. Moses is called the servant of the Lord. Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. So Joshua is, is intentional. This picture is painted of Joshua is the new Moses. He was Moses' aide. He was a faithful believer. He's the one that's called to lead the people. But that's not all. Joshua points back to Moses but he does something else. He points forward to Jesus. He's the, Jesus is the greater Joshua. The story of Joshua paves the way for the gospel. In fact, the name Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. So Joshua, Jesus is basically the same name. Of all the Old Testament figures the Messiah might have been named after, the Lord chose Joshua. And Jesus is the new Joshua. He does what the first Joshua did, but in a greater, transformative way. Jesus begins his public ministry in all four Gospels in the area right around the Jordan River, right where Jericho once was, right where Joshua began the conquest of the land. Just as Joshua faced opposition from the kings of Canaan and its inhabitants, so Jesus faced opposition from King Herod and the Israelites. Just as Joshua brought down the walls of the wicked city of Jericho, so Jesus said that no, not one stone would be left upon another, that the wicked city of Jerusalem would also be judged. Just as Joshua rescued a harlot, Rahab, from Jericho, so Jesus rescues adulteress from the Pharisees. Just as Joshua is a warrior who went forth conquering, uh, so Jesus is an even greater warrior engaged in a greater conquest with a greater sword, described in Revelation 19, as a sort of word coming forth from his mouth. And while Joshua's conquest was limited to the land of Canaan and brought death to the Gentiles, the greater Joshua will conquer the whole world, but not to condemn the nations, but to bring them salvation. 
So you see, Joshua pointed, and that's the most important thing that I want you to get is Joshua pointed back. He was a type of, 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 of Moses. He pointed back to his leadership, his type of anointing that God came from Moses, but he pointed ultimately to the future coming, to the coming Messiah. His name literally means the Lord saves. Joshua's name literally means the Lord saves. Now for some historical context. Here's a map that we're gonna put up on the board as I'm reading here. And so if you look at the left side, yeah, left side. If you look at the left side, that's Egypt. And that's the map of the journey. Um, it's kind of hard to see, but they kind of go down through the peninsula, back up and around. That's kind of the, the map of the journey that the Israelites took for the 40 years. And I want to give you a little bit of a homework assignment. Next time you get a chance, look through the map in the back of your Bible. Find the map that traces the route of the Exodus. You'll find that the Israelites ended up east of Canaan on the plains of Moab, just to the north of the Dead Sea, and just across the Jordan River from the city of Jericho. Now, identifying these places will help you as we go through this series together. So you can turn the lights back up, but this will help you as, you, uh, as we go through this series together. So when you get a chance, this is your homework assignment. Check out the map. Maps are kind of fun, by the way. Kind of look at, look at where everybody went. You know, I know Daniel was like, yes, they are. Other people are like, what, did he just say maps are fun? <laughs> Most conservative scholars believe that Israel arrived in Moab sometime during the 15th century B.C., this is the time when Canaanite culture was flourishing. The legal code of Hammurabi was established. Hammurabi was actually the first major king and what would become the Babylonian Empire. It was growing and the merchants of Canaan were prospering since the major trade routes between Africa and Asia passed right through their land. This flourishing Canaanite culture lies in the background of the promise found in Deuteronomy 6 where it says, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Indeed, this is, this is actually the promise realized here is that this historical background, this period, these cities, this is the area that, he's going, that the Israelites are going into. So geopolitical climate of this period is also important to understand. There were three great empires during this time, all of which figure into the account of Israel entering into Canaan and conquering the land. First, there were the Egyptians to the south. I would say a little south and southwest were the Egyptians, who were certainly not friends of Israel, obviously. You, saw what, you know what happened. Moses watched Prince of Egypt. Okay. Second, there were the Babylonians to the east. That's the Mesopotamian Empire. And then there were the dreaded Hittites, the superpower of that time, who lived in the north. So south, southwest, Egyptians. To the east, there was the Babylonians, or the Mesopotamian Empire. And to the north, the Hittites. But providentially, the land of Canaan was in the middle of all three empires and was largely populated by loosely affiliated tribes who had a reputation for great ferocity. So what we had instead in the land of Canaan was not powerful empires, but instead loose tribes, major cities, but tribal cities that were warlike, that were used to being fight, used to fighting and conquering, right? This meant there was a power vacuum of sorts, which would allow the Israelites to occupy the land without having to fight any of the major empires. Now, why did I just give you a quick history lesson or a geography lesson? Anybody? Because it's fun. No. Because it shows you 
the way that God providentially even works empires into place. He works geography into place. Guys, the Israelites would never have been able to go in. If it was 30 years, if it was 25 years, you never know what the, the, what the region would have looked like. But at that moment, exactly 40 years after wandering in the wilderness, there was a vacuum of sorts. The empires were in their little areas, but the land of Canaan was ready to be occupied. When we say Jesus came in the fullness of time, it wasn't an accident that he came when he came. When the Roman Empire was at the state that it was at, and the roads were free and travel was able to occur the way it was able to occur. Do you see what I'm saying? That our God is sovereign over empires. And it's important. I also imagine Joshua, when he took over from Moses, he's been afraid of what was ahead. And he needed to be afraid. The task was daunting, filled with unknown challenges. You guys remember, Joshua was one of the 12 spies that went into the land a generation earlier, right? Remember, you guys remember Moses sent some spies into the land to check it out? And they came back, and most of them were scared, and they saw giants in the walled cities. But Joshua was one of those guys like, oh, we got this. But all the people, I'm sure, felt weak and scared, and they wondered if God would still be with them. Would they win the battle? And in the midst of this transitional time, God comes and tells Joshua, as a leader and representative of the people, be strong and courageous. That was God's word to Joshua and to Israel. And honestly, through them to us as we're starting this new year. Be strong and courageous. Yes, there's fortified cities. Yes, there's giants. Yes, there's tribal warlording lands. Yes, COVID is still around. Yes, there's inflation. Yes, we don't know what's gonna happen. But be strong and courageous. And there's three reasons that emerge from this passage by Joshua and that people should be strong and courageous as they move into this new phase in history. And here are the three reasons. One, we have God's promise, we have God's pattern, and we have God's presence. We have God's promise, we have his pattern, and we have his presence. First, we have God's promise. What did God promise? All the way back in Genesis 12, God promised Canaan to, to Abraham's descendants. Now God says that promise will come to fruition. One, three. It says, I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. We can win the fight because God promises, assures success. The Israelites had powerful enemies in their way. They had the Canaanites and various tribes throughout the land. They had powerful empires on all sides of them. But they were promised success. We have powerful enemies that stand in our way. Traditionally, the church has identified its enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what the church, traditionally, historically, has identified as our enemy. Those are our Canaanites. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And in the world, we have rebellion against God, tempting us, seducing us, drawing our affections away from Christ. The world symbolizes anything that says, take your affections, even though they may be good, take your affections from where they truly belong. That's what the world does. It says, worship stuff other than God. But then we have our flesh, the enemy within, our own sin nature. As those who have been united to Christ, sin's reign has been toppled in our lives. Sin has been dethroned, but it wants its crown back. Sin still, sin still wages a kind of guerrilla warfare against us. That's what Paul called the flesh, the kind of the residualness of our fallenness that still exists in us, even though we've been joined to Christ. Sometimes the flesh is called the old man or the old Adam. Martin Luther put, this, put it this way. He said the old Adam was drowned in baptism, but the old Adam swims well. 
There's this sin nature that exists that's been drowned in baptism, but it's kind of trying to wage war. No, it's lost. It's lost to war, but it's still trying to wage war in our sin nature until we come to the place where God's consummated all that he's going to do and we've been made perfect. But until that day comes, our sin nature still wages against us. And we have to fight often the sin within. And then the third enemy is the devil. Paul said in Ephesians 6 that we have to put the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of Satan. There's a lot of mystery here, but through our prayers, our, our, through our, our faithfulness, Satan's kingdom is conquered and Christ's kingdom gets the victory. We're, we're soldiers in this cosmic battle between the Lord and Satan. Here's the beautiful thing. This battle against the devil, we've already established in the book of Revelation, Jesus is one. He's just on his deathbed. He's in his death throes. And he's trying to trick us and lie to us as he's, as he's being trampled into death. But he wants to bring us down with him. And so the historical enemies of the church has always been the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so just like the Israelites, as we face these things, they seem daunting, they seem big, they look bigger, but God has promised victory. We can fight to win, we can fight with confidence because we know that Christ, our greater Joshua, has already won the definitive battle for us. He defeated the world he defeated our flesh. He defeated Satan through his cross and resurrection. We can fight with strength and courage because we know what has been promised us is sure. And what's that promise? Not only Canaan, but the whole earth. God promises paradise restored and consummated, resurrected bodies in a resurrected creation. Wherever your foot steps belongs to you. In the end, everything belongs to the people of God. But even now, before the final time, before the end times, promise comes to realization as the gospel of Jesus runs throughout this earth. So as we move into this new era, we must never forget God's promise that whatever we accomplish, whatever growth or maturity we attain together, whatever success we have, whatever battles we win, it's all due to God's promises, God's grace, God's power. We can't do it on our own strength, but we stand upon the promises of God. Amen? Secondly, we have God's pattern. He says, be strong and courageous. Uh, be strong and courageous is given to us. The second reason to be strong and courageous is given to us in, in verses 7 and 8. It says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. For Joshua, the pattern was Moses' law. This was his book. If Joshua walked that path, he was sure to find victory. The idea is here's the pattern that God has given us, that he's given us the way. He's given us the mold. Walk in this and we're assured success. And we have something better, a bigger book, a completed book. The great Joshua did not annul or abolish the law of Moses, but he fulfilled it. And the law was crucified with him and rose with him, transformed and glorified. And so the pattern we've been given has been a pattern given by the fullness and the full revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ. It's a pattern of sacrificial love that leads to ultimate victory. Jesus said as our commander, he says, a new command I give you, love as I have loved you see, what I'm saying here is that the pattern that God's given us is that if we walk in the pattern that God has laid out for us, success and prosperity is promised us, but not promised us the way the world thinks it is. 
hear me real quick. It doesn't mean that if you do everything the way Jesus says, that you're going to make a million dollars and you're going to be famous and your life is going to be easy, you'll have no trouble and you'll never get sick. Right? That's not what it says. Right? Here's what it says. But you'll be victorious. If you walk in the pattern that God has called you, the self-sacrificial love like Jesus did, it didn't spare Jesus from the cross, did it? And for suffering. But it promised victory. And for us, in our day, in our lives, as we live on this earth, we walk in the pattern that God has given us. If we walk in the, in the, in the law incarnate, in the love of Jesus, and the way he modeled it for us, it does not promise us material success and wealth. It promises us true victory. It promises a true reward. A faith unshakable, a love unbreakable, something that is worth more than all the riches in the world. An understanding, a profound belonging, a profound hope. Hope in something eternal and lasting. And as we understand that that is our reward, that the pattern states that if we walk sacrificially, live in this way, live according to his word, that ours is the victory. What confidence we have. And the third reason to be strong and courageous is God's presence. God is with us. As we look at verse 1-5, it says, As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I'll not leave you nor forsake you. One night says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God's presence gives us strength to fight even when we face giants and walled cities. If you were here on Christmas Eve, you heard me share the words Hudson said to Josiah when Josiah was too afraid to ride the zip line. Hudson looked at Josiah and said, don't be afraid, Josiah. I'm here and God's here with you too. I was like, I know, really cute, right? Hudson understood and wanted Josiah to understand that presence, specifically God's presence, lets us face giants and walled cities, zip lines, in 2022 with confidence. I overheard my sister teaching her daughter the other day. And I was blessed to have my sister and her kids over, and her daughter is five years old. And I overheard, she was, my sister was teaching my, her daughter about bravery and what bravery it was. She said that being brave, and my, my niece's name is Maggie, so being brave, Maggie, isn't about being, not being scared. It's about being brave is being scared and still doing it. I love that. My people, we have God with us. Be brave. It doesn't mean you don't have to be scared. It doesn't mean that you can't you can be like, oh, I'm so scared of the future, I'm so scared of what's gonna happen. It says you're gonna be scared, but you're gonna walk through it anyway because you know you have the presence of God who will never leave you and will never forsake you. How do we know God is with us? He promised it over and over again in the book of Joshua. He promised it in his covenant commitment to his people. He fulfilled his promise in the work of Jesus. He seals his promise in the Holy Spirit living in us. He shows his promise by our gathering together in our local church bodies for assembly and worship. He will consummate his promise in the renewal of all things. God is with you. I'm going to share another Hudson story. Sorry. I'm not really sorry, but I'm going to share another Hudson story with you. For some reason, Hudson is deathly scared of going to the doctor. I think maybe from maybe earlier trauma in his life, or it also might be the time that he went, me and him went to the doctors together, and they had to get like a million vials of blood drawn when he was like two, 
and the phlebotomist kept on struggling to get the, the, the needle in the right spot. And when she finally did, she let go for a second, and he freaked out, and the needle pulled out everywhere, and blood went everywhere. And I'm freaking out, and I'm yelling, and he's yelling. We're all yelling. It wasn't a good experience. So I'm traumatized as well. But Hudson is really honestly freaked out now after that experience of going to the doctor. I mean, just crazy, like absurdly scared. This last time I took him to Duke, Maine for two visits. And uh, he was so scared. I saw him in the back of the van as we got closer and closer to the hospital getting just more and more scared. And he kept on asking me if he really had to go. Like, do we really have to go? Appa, do I have to go? He actually started offering deals with me. He's like, Appa, I'll eat all my vegetables. We don't have to go. You know, he just didn't want to go. And honestly, it hurt my heart for him. I was like, oh, poor guy. He's so traumatized. He's so scared. Gina's like, you take him. She, she intentionally schedules an appointment she's working. I was just, I was just kidding. I knew it was scared. I knew, I knew how bad it was, but, but I knew he had to go. I knew it was best for him, so I knew it wouldn't be that bad. He, just, he was just scared. So we parked the car. We started walking in, and he just gripped my hand as hard as he could. And we checked in, and the nurse checked us in, uh, the, the receptionist checked us in, we went back, the nurse brought us back and did all this stuff. The doctor came in, and I wasn't sure, but then the doctor said, yes, we have to draw blood. I was like, oh, man, <laughs> this will be fun. And so we're doing through all this work, and I'm just, I told Hudson, I said, Hudson, I'm sorry, buddy, but we're going to have to needle him. We're going to have to draw some blood. And he just looked at me, so scared, tears in his eyes. And he just said, okay, will you just hold me tight? I know, right? <laughs> okay, just, just, just hold me tight. My people in the walls seems so high, when the giants seem so big, when the needle looks so scary, when the pandemic doesn't seem to ever end, when you're so fearful for your children's safety and their future, will you turn to your loving God? Just ask him, God, will you just hold me tight? Guys, it's his presence, God with us. Uh, let's just face any giant. His presence is all that you need to be strong and courageous. And remember that being strong and courageous is not the absence of fear. It's being afraid and still doing what you need to do. He's with you. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for being with us. We thank you that you made it evident, your promises are fulfilled, your pattern is beautiful, and you are with us. God, even this morning as we celebrate communion together, it's a celebration of you doing whatever it takes to be with us. So we praise you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. At this time of our service, we are going to partake in the Lord's Supper or communion. Um, and this is something we do as we join with our brothers and sisters around the world. Did everybody get a cup? Everybody's got one? Good. We join with our brothers and sisters around the world. Um, and this is uh, for those who are followers of Christ. And we remember... And we reflect the, on the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ and, and the new life we have in him. 
and particularly the new covenant we have in him. And this is a time to renew that covenant. In Joshua, we'll notice they renew the covenant. And uh, sometimes we forget that we're even in a covenant. Uh, You hear the covenant language sometimes, but as believers, we're in this covenant with Christ. And I often say that communion has three elements if you look at its presentation in the New Testament letters. One is it's a family meal. Two is it's a time to confess and accept God's grace and, and, and accept his forgiveness. And three, it's a time to renew the covenant and remember the new covenant that we have in Jesus' blood. So let's do that right now in the new year. Many uh, Christian traditions, like the start of the new year, is a, is a time to renew your covenant with God. So let's take a moment and do that and really just, just remember the goodness of God and the faithfulness and your brokenness and just lay everything at his feet, accept his forgiveness and grace. So let's do that right now. God, we thank you for the new covenant we have in you. May we be people who don't fear, not because we're, we have it in us. Every time they win a battle in the Old Testament, it's when they're outnumbered and they pray. They never win a battle, ever, because of their, victor, because of their military might. They always win because people followed your law and loved you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and, and accepted your grace and forgiveness when they fell short. That's how we're going to win the battle today. That's how we're going to win the battle tomorrow. May we be people who just fall on our faces and continually say, God, we need you. And we thank you for this meal today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you can take your, I know it's hard to, for some of you it might be hard to get your thing, peel it off. And let's take this bread together. This is the body of Christ shed for us. In the same way, after his supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. We are new covenant people in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. God, we praise you for the new covenant we have in you. We praise you that we can come to this table and and be renewed and be restored. We can rest in you every day. And you promise that you'd give us your rest in Hebrews 4. And we thank you that the full, the true Joshua, the only one who could give us victory over sin and death and the world and the brokenness, the only true Joshua is, is reigning right now and is Lord over us and has poured out his spirit upon his church. God, may this year and all years be the year where we as your people love you with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And in that, we can go out and love a hurting and broken world. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for this family. 
Thank you for the new covenant we have in you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.